The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 4. The Apostle John writes, After this I looked, Behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And, and the one seated on the throne, he who sat there, he had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne, there were 24 thrones. And seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne, there came flashes of lightning, and rumblings and peals of, of thunder. Before the throne, there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. So if you haven't already, I do invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 4. Last week, we finished up looking at the individualized messages of chapters 2 and 3 that are written to the seven churches in Asia Minor to whom Revelation is addressed. The entirety of Revelation is addressed to those seven churches, but chapters two and three had specific messages for each one of them. And if you remember, in each of those messages, Jesus calls every single one of those churches to conquer. It doesn't matter what situation they find themselves in, and all of them, remember, are either struggling or suffering. They're either struggling with sin or they are suffering from persecution. But it doesn't matter. Christ still calls them all to be faithful to him no matter the cost. That's what it means to conquer in the book of Revelation. Conquering in Revelation is not killing your enemies. Often it's the opposite. It's being killed by them. But still clinging to Christ in faithfulness. That's what it means to conquer. These churches are to cling to Christ for the entirety of their lives. And so the question becomes, what will empower them to do that? What, 
What's going to empower Smyrna to do what Christ called them to do? Be faithful unto death. Do that to conquer, to cling to Christ. When it's going to empower them to do that when they struggle. Many of them are struggling. We saw that. They're struggling with a constant temptation to give in to the idolatry or the immorality that surrounds them. I mean, these churches, everyone, everyone in their culture celebrates plurality in spirituality and sexuality. Like, spirituality and sexuality in first century Asia Minor was a pick-your-own-adventure smorgasbord. And anyone promoting one God as the true God or one way of life as the true way we are meant to live, they were simply narrow-minded, out of step with the times, and obviously on the wrong side of history. Sounds really unfamiliar, doesn't it? And here's the deal. If these Christians don't participate in their culture's idolatry and immorality, they will most likely be persecuted. We've seen that already. We've seen many of them are already suffering persecution for not bending the knee to the Roman Empire or its emperor, Domitian. I mean, shades, Domitian. This, this, this is an emperor who sits upon his throne demanding to be called Lord and God. That's how he wanted to be addressed. He, he demands that his subjects greet him with the refrain, you are worthy, Lord and God. Like, in that environment, what, what will empower these Christians to conquer when they suffer under that throne? Shades, what will empower us to conquer when we experience this same suffering and struggling? It may go by a different name or different names today, but we experience these exact same sufferings and, and strugglings. What, what will empower us to cling to Christ no matter what kind of political power rules over us? What, what will empower us to cling to Christ and let go of every idol that our culture promises us will finally fill us with satisfaction? What will empower us to cling to Christ and let go of all the immoralities that our culture promotes and saying that they promise they will give us permanent pleasure? What, what will empower the church to cling to Christ and conquer? Only, only a revelation of the one who has already conquered. That's it. We, unless we see Christ as having already conquered, we will not cling to Him through all of our sufferings and strugglings. We need a revelation of God Himself seated on His throne. His throne that is higher than every emperor ever. His throne that exposes the emptiness of every idol. And His throne that outpleasures every immoral pleasure, revealing that they are just impoverished pleasures that they claim to be like what what will empower us to conquer is the one who has conquered all we need a vision of the triune god father son and holy spirit and shades is that not the message that literally surrounds these seven churches in the book of revelation like if you just step back for a second and look at the structure that we've encountered of Revelation chapter 1 through 4, are we not seeing these seven churches completely surrounded by the reality of the sovereign God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? I mean, remember, remember back to chapter 1, before we get those messages to those churches, what do we get? We get a vision of the resurrected Christ in the midst of his churches because we need the resurrected Christ in order to conquer. 
Then, in chapters 2 and 3, as we went all throughout those seven messages, what do we get told again and again as the reason we need to listen? It's because this is the Spirit and what He says to the churches. He is the one addressing the churches. He's the one that can empower the churches to respond to His address. We need the empowering Spirit to conquer. And then as soon as those seven messages end at the close of chapter 3, right here in Revelation 4, what do we get? A vision of the Sovereign Father seated on His throne. Because we need the sovereign, triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in order to conquer through all our suffering and all of our struggling. Shades, these seven churches, they could face a world and face a life filled with suffering, filled with struggling, because the resurrected Christ is with them. The empowering Spirit is in them. And the sovereign Father rules over them. That is the reality that Revelation unveils in a way that literally surrounds those seven churches. Christ before you, the Spirit undergirding you, God the Father ruling over you. They are literally surrounded by the reality of sovereign triune God. And shades, we are surrounded by the same reality today. Christ is with you. The The Spirit is in you. The Father rules over all. Do you believe that? Like amidst all the strugglings and sufferings that that we face, amidst current social unrest and racial injustices, amidst a contentious and polarizing national election, Even amidst a a global pandemic with the health crises it causes, with the mental health crises it causes, with the economic crises it causes, in the midst of all that, do you believe you're surrounded and empowered by the sovereign triune God who has already conquered? Do you see that? Do you see Him? This is what we need to see. This is what we must see if we are going to conquer, cling to Christ through all the struggles and sufferings of this life. And in Revelation chapter 4, the door to the throne room of God opens so that we may see exactly the one that we need. Begin reading with me. Revelation 4, verse 1. John writes, after this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the Spirit. So our author, John the Apostle, he's just finished receiving those seven personalized messages to the churches of Asia Minor. Recall the last one that we did last week. The the last message was to the church at Laodicea. You remember this church, the lukewarm church? They were so rich and wealthy, they felt like they needed nothing. They were totally self-sufficient. Remember how that letter closed, describing it as if this church in Laodicea had shut the door in Jesus' face. Just look back up to chapter 3 and verse 20. Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. You've shut me out, Laodicea, and I stand at the door and knock. If this church will just open its door so that he may come in and empower them to conquer, then he promises, in verse 21, he will grant them to sit on his throne as he also conquered and sat down with his father on his throne. 
Chase, do you see what's happening right here at the beginning of chapter 4 when it's partnered with the end of chapter 3? Ignore those chapter breaks. Even though Laodicea has shut the door in Jesus' face, in chapter 4, Jesus himself opens a door of his own. And he shows them the very throne that he has promised them. He shows them and shows us our true and only sufficiency. John sees a door standing open in heaven. He sees, and then he hears. And it's something that he's heard before. What does he tell us he hears? He says, this is a voice. It was the first voice that spoke to me all the way back in chapter 1 in verse 10, if you go back and look at it. I recognize it because it sounds just like a trumpet, a shofar, a ram's horn, like a, like a blast that's crystal clear and impossible to ignore. And we learned back in chapter 1 that this is the voice of Jesus himself. And what does he hear Jesus say? Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Okay. In chapters 2 and 3, Jesus has been addressing what's going on in his churches right now. Like in that very moment. But right here, 4 verse 1, there's a shift. We knew it was coming. John is invited now to see to come up so he can see heaven's perspective on what is going to be unfolding. For who? First and foremost, for these seven churches. Don't leave them behind at the end of chapter 3. For some strange reason, we get to the end of chapter 3, make it at chapter 4 and verse 1, and all of a sudden we think that when Jesus says, I'm going to show you what must take place after this, he means thousands of years after this. There's no justification for that in the text whatsoever. In fact, I think that what we're going to see week after week is what he is showing us is what is about to unfold for these seven churches. And what will be unfolding for all of Christ's churches throughout the last days of the church age. Remember that phrase, the last days? That, that doesn't refer to something that's far off in the future. When the New Testament talks about the last days, it is talking about the time that began when Christ rose from the dead until he comes again. That's the last days. We're in them. Welcome. You're here. The church has always been in them. And I think that this is what we're going to get for the rest of the book. We're going to get heaven's perspective on the life that these first century churches will face. And, we'll see how, we're going to get heaven's perspective on the life that the church in every generation will face. And how we're to live in light of how all things will end and begin again in new creation. That's the point of the entire book of, generation, of, the entire book of Revelation. This is a book for every generation of the church. Not for one that we don't know about far off in the future. For every generation, the first century and every generation after that. And what it does is it shows us how to live in the last days from Christ's resurrection until he comes again. And we've got to see that first and foremost through the lens of these first century churches to whom it was addressed. And then we get to see how it applies to us. So, John sees, John hears, and then John tells us at once he was in the Spirit. 
That's prophetic language we've already heard before. We heard it right before we got that apocalyptic vision of Jesus in chapter 1. And so hearing it again right here, it's supposed to trigger in us a pro, a, an apocalyptic vision is coming. You remember what an apocalypse is? Uh, apocalypse is the Greek word for revelation. Okay? It, it just means to reveal something, to unveil something. An apocalypse, if you can remember all the way back to our first week together, it is a genre of literature that these readers would have been familiar with. And what it does is it gives a heavenly message from God to his prophet through a messenger in the form of symbolic visions. That's very key. In the form of symbolic visions in order to reveal heaven's perspective on our present in light of the future. That's what's about to unfold for John. That's what he's been told is about to unfold. Come up here. I'm going to show you what's going to be taking place for these churches. Your present reality that's going to be unfolding. I'm going to show you my perspective on that in light of how I'm going to bring everything to a conclusion. John's in the spirit. Buckle up. Symbolic, apocalyptic visions are coming. John saw... John heard, and then he was in the Spirit. And I think that this vision invites us to experience that exact same thing. To see, to hear, and to worship in the Spirit. I think that just like Jesus extended an invitation to John, I think through this vision, he's extending the same invitation to us, to his church. So let's look that we might see. Let's listen that we might hear. And I bet that looking and listening will lead us to worship. So let's take those one at a time. First, let's look. Let's look in order to see what John sees. Everybody still with me? It's going to be a lot. Fire hydrant this morning, people. Here we go. Verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. John's grasping for words to describe what he sees right here. I mean, it's kind of like this. Imagine, imagine that you are sent to a tribal people who have no contact with the modern world. And your job is to explain electricity to them. How are you going to do that? Well, you see electricity, it's like this uh, invisible power. It's kind of like, a, I guess you might call it a spirit. And a spirit, it, it, it runs along these wires. Okay, you don't know what wires are. Okay, vines. So it's like a spirit that runs along vines and you can attach these vines to your hut you can even put this little orb in the middle of your hut attach this vine to it and it becomes like your own personal sun you can like flip it on and flip it off you can even get this huge box that you can attach these vines to and when the spirit runs through these vines into this box it makes the box cold and you can put food in it and keep it fresh for like forever how are we doing explaining electricity like, what's causing the problem in the communication? Is it that these people are not intelligent? Absolutely not. Of course, they're probably more intelligent than we are. They can survive a lot better than we probably could. No, the problem is their utter lack of experience. They, they don't have the categories for talking about electricity because they have no experience with it. So how shall John describe to us 
the throne room of God when we have an utter lack of experience. We've never been there. We've got no categories for talking about God in his unshielded glory. And so John grasps for, for words, and the words that he grabs onto are the words of the prophets who've gone before him. And in the words of Daniel 7 and Isaiah 6 and Zechariah 4 and Ezekiel 1, and even more than that, John is going to strain to give us a glimpse of the glory that he sees through the open door of heaven. And what he sees is a throne. The throne. Word's going to get used 17 times between the vision in chapter 4 and chapter 5, almost half the times it occurs in the book of Revelation. He sees the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper, the carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Like John can't even actually describe the one who's on the throne directly. All he can say is the same thing that Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 1.26. He, he looks like jewels, okay? Don't get tied up in the specific jewels. One, they didn't even classify jewels the same way we do in modern, so we're not even certain exactly what jewels are being described here. And that's not the point. The point is not the individual symbolism. The point is the collective symbolism, that this is bright beauty, that, that God looks like jewels reflecting and refracting light, shining brightness and beauty, a dazzling display of dancing light that almost leaves you dizzy. He's more mesmerizing than any rainbow you've ever seen. He's more, all all of us know what it's like to be captivated by light. All of you take pictures of sunrises and sunsets and you post them all over social media. And then we get frustrated because a picture can never quite capture the light that's captivating us. I imagine John feels frustration like that. How do you describe the God that 1 Timothy 6.16 says dwells in unapproachable light? How do you describe the God that Psalm 104.2 says He covers Himself with light as with a garment? I love Ezekiel 1.28. Ezekiel says, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. In other words, this is as close as I can get, people. It was beauty. The likes of which have not been seen since the original creation that Genesis 2 tells us was filled with the beauty of majestic stones. That's what these are supposed to recall. And seen beauty like this since the original creation. And we will not see this kind of unshielded glory and beauty again until the new creation. When we get to Revelation chapter 21, we'll see these stones again. They'll be in the description of the new Jerusalem in the new creation. A new creation that's coming. God's throne radiates with that very promise that new creation is coming. I know that because it radiates a rainbow. The the sign of God's covenant with Noah concerning creation, namely that it will not be destroyed. No, it will be made new. The, The promise of God's glory filling all of creation fills heaven. Heaven is a place where His promises shine forth. They saturate and hang heavy in the air like like shades. Are you glimpsing His glory yet? 
Heaven filled with the brightness of God's covenantal love shining forth from his throne. He had glimpsed his glory. John's not done getting us to look. He's just getting started. Look, let's look around the throne. That's where where verse 4 takes us. He has us look around the throne where he says, there were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. God's got an entourage. Who are these elders? And why specifically are there 24 of them? From all that we're going to see in the coming chapters, I think, it's my best guess, go do your own research, but I think that these elders are angelic beings. I think that because throughout the Bible... God is often described as having a divine council of angelic beings, a divine entourage. And throughout Revelation, we're going to see these elders doing things that angels do. They'll make appearances as guides for John through some of his visions. They'll offer prayers of the saints as incense to the Lord. These are things that angels do. I think these are angelic beings. And yet, Yet, there's 24 of them. That's significant because, remember, we're in an apocalyptic vision that's dripping with symbolism, and one of the things that apocalypses love to use symbolically, numbers. And throughout the book of Revelation, we are going to see that the number 12 and its multiples, 24, 144,000, The number 12 and its multiples are symbolic for the people of God. That's not unique to Revelation. That's actually pretty common throughout the the Bible because in the Old Testament, Jacob, or Israel, had 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 becomes a symbol for the whole of the people of God. Same thing happens in the New Testament. When Jesus chooses disciples, he chooses 12 of them in order to show that the people of God, the true Israel, are his disciples, those who follow him. In fact, again, when we get to Revelation chapter 21, in the New Jerusalem, the names of the 12 tribes will be inscribed on the gates of the New Jerusalem. And the names of the 12 apostles will be carved into the city's foundation in order to show that this is the eternal home of the whole of God's people. I think that's what these 24 elders symbolically represent here. 12 tribes of the Old Testament, 12 apostles of the New, the whole of God's people gathered around his throne. But Jonathan, you said they were angels. Yes, but remember, we've already seen this happen before. The seven messages to the seven churches, who were they addressed to? To the angel of the church in Laodicea, Right, we've already seen angels representing churches, and I think that right here we have 24 angels representative of the whole church throughout the world, throughout all time, gathered around the throne of God where he will fulfill every promise he has ever made to his people. 
Some of those promises fulfilled are pointed to right here. Remember back in chapter 3 and verse 5, he promised that he would clothe the conquerors in white garments. In chapter 2 and verse 10, he promised that he would give the conquerors a crown of life. In chapter 3 and verse 21, he promised that they would share in his reign from his throne. Here we have the whole people of God represented enthroned, crowned, and wearing white, reflecting and enjoying the glory of God forever. But that's not all. John doesn't just want us to look around the throne. He also wants us to see what comes from the throne and what's right before it. Look at verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, sea of glass like crystal. All of this, I'm going to argue, points to the sovereign power of the one seated on the throne. Lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder. These are echoes of God's sovereign power sounding off the pages of Exodus 19. From the foot of Mount Sinai, do you remember there? God came down on the mountain with rumblings and lightning and peals of thunder. Sovereign power on display. Before the throne, we've got these seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven we should be familiar with already through our time in Revelation, another symbolic number. It's a symbolic number of completeness or totality or fullness. It's really that all throughout Scripture because it, we get that symbolism from creation. God creates in six days and he rests on the seventh because creation is complete, full, done, in total. And so seven becomes a symbol for completeness. So before the throne of God, we've got the full, complete, total, powerful, Holy Spirit of God symbolized by these seven torches of fire. That comes to us straight out of the vision in Zechariah chapter 4. full spirit of God powerfully on display. And I think specifically as seven torches of fire because we've already encountered exactly seven lampstands. Seven lampstands that represent the seven churches that need to be lit up. They need seven lights. It is the Holy Spirit of God that empowers the church to shine a light into the darkness of this world. Here we see God's sovereign. Power. And then there's the sea of glass, like crystal. Now, in order to know what's going on here, you've got to know that the Jews were not a seafaring people. They weren't, weren't much on sailing. That thing in the north that they call the Sea of Galilee, it's a glorified lake. I've been there. We've got bigger lakes in Alabama. The few stories we have of people, Jews, sailing in Scripture tends not to go great. Think Jonah. Paul, they were not a seafaring people, and thus the sea became a symbol of a place of chaos and death. That's where you went to die. It was, you can see this right from the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 1. It is from the chaotic waters that God brings forth creation. You see it in Genesis 6. It's the chaotic seas that consume the world in a flood. We will see this in Revelation itself. Revelation chapter 13, the evil beast himself will rise from the chaotic waters of the sea. 
But what we're meant to see right here is that in the presence of God, the chaos stills. Unable to defy his control. If he sovereignly says, peace be still, even the wind and the waves obey him and become smooth enough that you imagine he could walk on them if he wanted. I think he may have done that before. Sovereign power. we got lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, the fullness of God's Holy Spirit and the chaotic seas under his control. Everything coming from this throne communicates the sovereign power of the one who is seated on it. And all of creation sees that. That's what we get. Look at the end of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. You would often on ancient thrones get this kind of symbolism. A throne would often have different mythical beasts surrounding it, or it would even be set up on those mythical beasts as symbols that the person who sat there rules over all creation. Just like the 24 elders represent all the people of God, these four living creatures represent all of creation. We're going to see, again, we've got a number here, four. And we will see the number four again and again used in Revelation to symbolize the whole of creation. We're going to hear about the four corners of the earth. That's the whole thing. And hear about the four winds of the earth. This is the whole thing worldwide. Think of it as like saying the four cardinal directions of a compass. It's another way of saying worldwide. And all of creation is represented by these four living creatures, kings among creation. We got the king of wild animals, the lion, the strongest of domesticated animals, the ox, the ruler of the skies and everything that flies, the, the eagle, and the one who rules over them all, mankind is here too. And all of them are covered with eyes. That's an apocalyptic image for seeing everything. Covered up with eyes, it means you're all eyes. You see it all. The image, what it's communicating right here is this is creation beholding every bit of the glory of God that we have just seen described. And all of creation responds by doing what it was created to do. Worship. I actually think this is one of the reasons that these beings that are described to us right here, we don't really get these beings anywhere else in Scripture. We get things like them. Cherubim in Ezekiel 10, seraphim in Isaiah 1, and it almost looks like those two things have been stuck in a blender right here. And I think that's because these beings are meant to communicate multiple things. And I think that the reason they've got some of Isaiah 6's seraphim mixed in is because the job of the seraphim, what they do in Isaiah 6, is worship perpetually. And that's what all creation does right here around the throne of God. It does what it was created to do. Worship, we need to hear it. We've looked. Now let us listen in order that we might hear. Second thing we've got to do, listen. Look at verse 8. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings or full of eyes all around and within, and day and night, they never cease to say, 
holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is what we're meant to take away from what we've seen. For when creation right here sees everything, they're all eyes, when they see everything, this is what they sing. This is what they get. This is what they take away from what has been put before them. Holy, holy, holy. Honestly, that's really just another way of saying God, God, God. You alone are God. Holiness, it's a very hard word to define. It's a way of speaking about the godness of God. What makes him God? So sometimes when you hear this word defined at its base level, people will say that it means separate or distinct. It does mean that, but you can't really say separate, separate, separate. You're not really getting the full idea of what's going on. That's true. God is separate and just everything we've seen makes him that. He's in a category unto himself, separate, distinct from all else. I mean, is that not what the four creatures declare when they say holy, holy, holy? Is the Lord God almighty? When it comes to might and strength, he's in a category by himself. He's almighty. Who was and is and is to come. When it comes to existence, he's in a category by himself. He's eternal. No one else is like him. He alone was and is and is to come. Everything else had a time when it was not. Everything else is creation. He alone is creator. He is separate, distinct, Above all, the greatest, or we might say the supreme treasure of the universe. Everything else derives its value from him. Kind of like sunbeams coming from the sun. You don't get the beams without the sun. You don't get their warmth without the blazing brightness and warmth of the sun. He's in a category of his own. You want to talk in terms of economics? The more rare something is, the more it's worth. He's the only one that isn't only one. He's the supreme treasure of the universe. This is what it means that he is holy. If you look throughout the Old Testament, often when God corrects his people and tells them, you failed to uphold me as holy, what he's saying is you treated me like I was common like everything else. You failed to uphold me as the true supreme treasure that I am. This is why his throne alone is at the center of all reality. If you notice the way everything else has been described to us, everything else is either around the throne, from the throne, or before the throne. It all stands in relation to the throne, which alone is at the center of all reality because God alone is holy, holy, holy. But holiness doesn't just mean separate or distinct. We know the word also has a moral meaning. We use it that way, right? To talk about right and wrong. Or to talk about pure and impure. To talk about something being morally correct. Well, how is God, how are you going to measure if God is right? I know we're, we're, we're venturing into the deep end of theology. Stay with me. We're going to come back up for air in a moment. How are you going to measure if God is right, pure, or morally correct, well, he doesn't lie. He made that rule. He gets to make the rules. How are you going to measure? What, what, what standard exists outside himself to measure if he is right, good, morally correct, holy? There is none. 
can only be measured by the standard of himself. Here's my best shot at telling you what I think this looks like. God is right, pure, morally correct, holy, because everything he feels, everything he thinks, everything he says, everything he does, testifies to the truth that he is the supreme treasure of the universe. In other words, he tells the truth. What is the greatest treasure there is? Me. In all that he thinks, feels, does, and says, he tells the truth. This is what the 24 elders declare when they join in creation song. Look at verse 11. They say, worthy are you. Not just holy, separate, distinct, but right, pure. Worthy are you and you alone. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. In other words, you aren't just the supreme treasure, but you created all things to enjoy you as their treasure. That's what all creation is doing right here in Revelation chapter 4. You've told the truth, God, to your creation. There's nothing greater than you. And you've told the truth through your creation. Have we not seen that? Every glimmering gemstone points back to his glimmering glory. Every rainbow reminds us of his great promises. Every lightning bolt, peal of thunder, flame of fire, raging sea reminds us of his power and his sovereignty. He has told the truth to his creation and he has told the truth through his creation. There is no greater treasure than And he has made our hearts to be satisfied with nothing less than the best. And the best is him. That's the love of God towards you. Often when I talk about God's feelings, thoughts, actions, all of that, testifying to the greatness, his greatness as as the supreme treasure of the universe, people think, well, that's awful selfish of God. It's not. It's not. Because he's designed your heart to be satisfied with nothing less than the best. And the best is himself. He would be a liar if he told you anything else was the best. It is his love towards you that he tells the truth to you, that he is the supreme treasure that can satisfy your heart. That's right. That's pure. That's true. That is the love of God because he gives you the best. He gives you himself. And so we say you are worthy. We don't use that as a greeting for any emperor like Domitian. You remember Domitian wanted his subjects to greet him that way. You are worthy. We don't use that for any emperor even if they demand it like Domitian because God alone deserves that. He alone is worthy because he is our Lord and our God. You remember what Domitian wanted to be called? Lord and God. I won't call any emperor or idol Lord and God because that's only true about the one and true God seated upon his throne. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Shades. Shades. Do you see how the revelation of God himself seated on his throne empowers us amidst all our struggles with idolatry and immorality amidst all of our sufferings under any emperor or any empire. You see how a revelation of him on his throne empowers us through those things. 
What is any idol and the satisfaction it promises set next to the throne of God? It's, it's like a candle set next to the sun. Does the throne of God not reveal the emptiness of idols and how poorly they play pretend at being the real thing? When you see a vision of God, it empowers you to let go of every idol and cling to the thing that's real. What, what is any immorality and the pleasure that it, it promises set next to the pleasures that are before the throne of God? Is immorality not like a bone-dry well promising to quench your thirst set next to an ever-flowing, roaring fountain of the freshest, purest water that is the glory of God? You see how, how a revelation of God empowers you to let go of immorality for the superior pleasure, the eternal pleasure of God reveals the poverty of temporary pleasures that immorality offers. And Shades, what, what is any emperor or any empire with its claims to power set next to the throne of the Almighty? The emperors of this earth may insist that they wear all the power, but Shades, those emperors have no clothes. For there is one throne above every emperor ever, and it's not empty, it's occupied by the Almighty. Do, do you see, do you see how the, the revelation of God seated on His throne empowers us to conquer, to cling to Christ through, through all our struggles and through all of our suffering? We're, we're like, we're like a man who found a treasure in a field. And in our joy, we go and we sell everything else to buy that field. We will joyfully lose everything through struggling and through suffering because we know that we are clinging to Christ, the only true treasure that lasts forever. And we, to cling to Him is to conquer. Do you see Him, shade? Do you see him as the one who has already conquered and seated on his throne? No, no matter the, the struggling or the suffering that currently surrounds you, do you see him as the one who has conquered and promised to bring your suffering and struggling to a conclusion? Cling to him, shades. That's how this passage ends. It ends with the people of God clinging to their conqueror in worship. Look at verse 9 to 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for You created all things. And by Your will they existed and were created. The 24 elders worship representing the worshiping people of God. This is a picture of all God's people joining with creation in worship. This is the third and final thing for us this morning. We have looked, we have listened, and it leads us to worship. 
to look at the throne of God, listen to all creation worshiping Him. It leads you to worship. This is the only way we can respond. Finding our joy in Him. That's what worship is. You're the supreme treasure, my treasure, my joy is in you. That's what the elders right here are doing. The elders fall down because God is worthy of the worship of their entire being. They cast their crowns before his throne because he empowered everything they did to receive those crowns. All the glory is his and the joy is theirs and it's yours, shades. You are surrounded by this same reality right now. This is a vision of God's throne right now. Do you see it? Do do you hear it? Will you join it? How, how, How can you join it? All of the symbolism in this throne room, I I failed to mention one thing about all of it. All of the symbolism in this throne room stresses the distance between us and God. He dwells in unapproachable light. Lightning and thunder push us back from his throne as they pushed back the people from his presence at Mount Sinai. The sea of all this world's evil stands between us and our king. And even if we could cross it, his throne is guarded by an entourage, which in Revelation chapter 5, we're going to see is made up of myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands of angels. You manage your way to fight through all of them. You still got 24 elders worth of angels left to do with and even if by some way you make it past them you got to face down those four living creatures who resemble ezekiel's cherubim i think one of the reasons they've got ezekiel's cherubim mixed in is because throughout scripture cherubim guard the way to the presence of god garden of eden adam and eve expelled what guards the way back in cherubim tabernacle you want to get into the holy of holies you got to pass through a veil guess what's embroidered on it cherubim The temple, you want to pass in the Holy of Holies? Guess what's on the door? Cherubim. You want to get to the Ark of the Covenant, which is called the footstool of God's throne. Guess what guards it over the lid? The cherubim. How are you and I going to get into the presence of this God? Only. Only by invitation. And there's only one who can extend it. And he did. Back in verse 1. Jesus. By his cross, he opened the door to the presence of God. And not just for John, who in verse 1, he invites to come up here and see what must take place after this. But he opened it for you and me because this whole book is addressed to you and me. This morning, he has opened that door, given us a glimpse of the very center of all reality right now, the very throne of God. No no matter what our struggles or sufferings look like on the surface of this world, the truest, deepest reality is being glimpsed right here. God is sovereign. God is on the throne. God will keep his promise to bring us all the way home and make all things new. Do you believe that's true, Shades? Will you accept Christ's invitation into the presence of this God and come before his throne to look, to listen, and to be led to worship.